and gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? taking over for Jonah Goldberg while he flits about doing God only knows what. Um, and as part of the takeover, I have invited a longtime good friend to the pod to talk succulents, national parks, balloons, immigration. I don't know. Who knows what we'll discuss today? It is the one, the only former CIA operative, but also maybe he was in Congress. Uh, he's been to New Hampshire, which is a weird place to visit in the winter. We'll, we'll, we'll see what he's up to. Will Hurd, welcome to The Remnant. What's up, Sarah? Thanks for having me on. <laughs> so we first met um, over margaritas and chips at El Arroyo. That's right, in, in Austin, Texas. We're over 10 years now. Our 10-year anniversary has passed, friend. I think it's more than 10 years, if I'm being honest. No, it is. That's what I'm saying. I think it's like, I think we're at like 12, maybe more. Yeah, because I, I, think, it, I think we first met after I had already been in the CIA. I had already been out of the CIA. That was around 2009, 2010-ish. So uh, it's, you know, we're racking up the times. <laughs> we're getting so, I'm so old that my interns are now old. That's what really sunk in for me when like my former interns are now like in their 30s. I was like, uh-oh. Those, those, those are some old interns, just for the record. Okay, a 30-year-old intern, yeah. And hopefully that's a career change or a career path difference, <laughs> you know? But the part, the part that I felt old I was given a speech at a university and I referenced Y2K. And the the look, the look in the crowd, they were like, what the heck is Y2K? And I stopped and I said, everybody raise their hand if you know what Y2K is. Probably about a hundred kids, students, excuse me. And none of them knew what Y2K was. Right. Like that's when I was like, wow. Yeah. What's so funny about that is like, you know, you talk about old movies or Seinfeld references or whatever, and you're like, oh, you know, you're too young for that, or even election stuff. But like, we all know Bill Clinton was president. You may not remember the New Hampshire primary comeback kid stuff. But like Y2K was a huge deal, and now nobody uses that term ever again. It's gone. No, it, it is. And look, I, I'm, I'm trying to bring it back because there was actually some lesson from... <laughs> No, no, but seriously, like there were lessons from Y2K on some of the technology stuff I do, I do now. And there was a Senate committee on Y2K. The United States government spent $300 billion in three years over Y2K to change the year from two digits to four digits, right? Like that's crazy. And so you think about how big of an effort it was for something that simple. And when it comes to things like quantum computing and, and artificial intelligence, right, we're going to need that same level of commitment and we're not seeing it. So, so that's why I'm trying to bring back, you know, Y2K was a, was a good success story and, and we need to remember that. This is why Will is amazing, because you can literally be talking about nothing and Will will make it not only something, but you're like, now I just want to spend an hour talking about the metaphor of Y2K. Okay, so El Arroyo, for those who don't know, it means the ditch. It's this little restaurant in Austin that's pretty famous, but it's maybe most famous for its Twitter feed. So if you just need like funny, awesome, pick me up once a day, um, check out El Arroyo's Twitter feed because they have a sign out in front of the restaurant and each day it has a new awesome little funny weird message um i don't know if you have any like favorite el arroyos on the top of your I, mind I, I don't but i think they were memeing before memeing was a thing yeah so like here's one from a couple days ago my cooking is so awesome even the smoke alarm cheers me on get your 30 year old intern working on that and see if if they were the original memers uh so i bring that up because you were just starting your first run for Congress is my memory of, of why we were chit-chatting that day. Why did you run for Congress? And don't give me the like stump speech version. You had real thoughts about what you wanted to do and why you were going and you served three terms and then you've peaced out. Let's talk about that. The reason I was running, like you, you got to go back um, when I was at Texas A&M University and, and my degree is in computer science. And I was, I had, you know, I grew up in San Antonio, Texas, and I had never been outside of, of Texas. 
in, uh, in before I went to college. Now, I had been to Langston, Oklahoma. Langston, Oklahoma is basically Texas. I hope there's no a Langston, Oklahomans listening to the remnant and getting upset, but it's very similar. Okay. And I, and I mean that in a positive way. That's, that's not a, that's not a derisive co- comment. Um, I had, I had gone to Stanford because I was, I was going to go to Stanford, got accepted to Stanford, only went to the campus. And, and so those are really only, and I, and I went to Indiana as a kid when my grandmother died because my mom's from there. I don't remember. I was too young. So my freshman year in college, I'm walking across our engineering building and I see a sign to take two journalism classes in Mexico City for $425. I had 450 bucks in my bank account. So I go to Mexico, fell in love being in another culture, actually fell in love with the, the backup singer for Cielo and Tierra. Um, that, was a, that was a fun time. Um, and and uh, I thought it was cool seeing things I only read about in books. Added international studies as a minor. First class I took, guest lecture, the CIA badass. Pardon my language. I hope that's allowed. I hope this is PG-13. And, and he told these amazing stories. And I'm like, I want to do that. I want to serve my country overseas. So I graduated from A&M and went into the CIA. And my job was to be overseas recruiting spies and stealing secrets. So chased terrorists, prevented Russians from stealing our secrets, um, tried to prevent a nuclear weapons proliferators from bringing in dirty bombs, you know, best job on the planet. But in addition to doing that job, I had to brief members of Congress. And I probably briefed over 200 members, Republicans, Democrats, men, women, all these states, and they were morons. And I thought, I, and, and, and look, they were doing things that I thought were countering what my colleagues and I were putting our lives on the line in order to do. And so some people had put uh, an idea in my head, a guy named Josh Robinson and Stoney Burt uh, put these ideas in my head to run for office. And so I moved back to San Antonio and run for office. Everybody thought I was crazy. I'm a black Republican running in a 72% Latino district. Um, I hadn't lived in San Antonio in 15 years. Nobody thought I had a chance in hell in pulling this off. And, and But to me, it was I was pissed, right? Like I was pissed that these people that were setting our laws were actually doing things that were eroding our national security. And so I decided to try to do something about it. And, um, you know, I, I lost that first election by 700 votes in a runoff, which is not a lot of votes, by the way. And I lost it because I made a strategic and, uh, and a tactical error. So it's my responsibility. But then I won in 2014. Okay, we're going to come back to that. But while in Congress, you also served on the National Parks Caucus. I did. And I bring this up because you have this cool thing that people can sign up for on your website, willbeheard.com. Wait, what's your middle name? Uh, okay, see if you can guess it. it. It starts with a B, obviously, and it rhymes with a waterfowl. You get you got five seconds. Beast? <laughs> uh, most people say buck. Baron, right? baron. Uh, that's pretty good. No one's ever guessed that. Um, Ballard. Right. Ballard. Um, William Ballard heard. Ballard is my dad's my dad's um best friend's name. Oh, that's super cool. Well, okay, you go to willbeheard.com and you can sign up for the brief. Now, before we go into this, Will, I just want to be you have to be so honest right now, and I mean it. I'm looking you in the eyes. Do you write the brief? I do. I do. This is not staffers. I write the brief, I write the blogs. Um, you know, a- after I wrote, you know, I wrote a book, American Reboot. And, and um, when I did that, the best lesson, I, I, I took a couple of those master classes, you know, the, the, that, that online course. Seriously, yeah. Yeah, I, I, seriously. And I did one from um, Dan Brown. Now, I didn't realize like Dan Brown is kind of controversial. People think he's, some people love him. Some people think he's a bad writer. But guess what? He sold a lot of freaking books, right? And, and Dan Brown was like, commit to the process have a process. And, and so what I would do, I would wake up at 0600 and I would write for two hours straight. And then on the weekends, I would write for four hours on Saturday um, and potentially you know, between four and eight on Sunday. And that's how I, that's how I banged out uh, American Reboot. And so I've, I've kept that process. Right? I, I don't, not the weekends, I don't write as much, but every morning um, I write for two hours 
Um, it's look, it's it's a great way to to get your thoughts together. But yeah, so I write it and I choose the topics, and that's why I write about things I care about, like national parks, right? You know, um, I mean, some of the topics are awesome, and we're gonna we're gonna go through a few of them. Like the most recent one, would China and Russia attack Hawaii? But put a pin in that because first I want to talk national parks. I wasn't totally sure whether you were writing them. I knew you were picking the topics just by the topics. But then I read the National Parks one and I was like, if someone wanted to understand my friend Will Hurd, I'm going to send them this link and say, like, just read this. And now you totally get Will. This is Will. And I'm going to explain why. I appreciate that. It's everything. It's the writing. It's the topic. It's the outline of the whole thing. It's like the most Will synthesizing thing ever. So it's an eight minute read, everyone. And he starts, the question that he's posing is, how many national parks are there? And right off the bat, you just know he's not going to really give you an answer. Um, He says, if you're asking how many national parks in the United States are specifically designated as national parks by the National Park Service, the answer is 63. However, the NPS also manages other types of federal lands. And if you count all the places that NPS manages, the number jumps up to 423. Before breaking down the different kinds of places managed by the NPS and the national park system, let me share my favorites. And I just want to be clear, like, I talk to a lot of politicians, I have a lot of weird friends, and a a top five national parks would be so geared toward the audience, you would never really know what their top five is. So like, for instance, if if someone were to say, you're going to talk to a guy who served three terms in Congress from San Antonio, and he's bebopping around Iowa and New Hampshire right now. Give me his five national parks. I would be able to tell you what they are. Like Big Ben would be first because you always want to have some hometown, you know, flair. You definitely have like the White Mountains, like some Granite State love up there. Nope, not Will. So first of all, bewilderingly, Big Ben is number four on the list. I That's not even correct just from an objective standpoint. His first one is Hawaii. (laughs) Haleakala. Haleakala. Haleakala, right? So so here's why Hawaii is like my first, right? Uh Uh-huh. And and, and I, I don't want to interrupt. I don't want to interrupt your train of thought. You're on. You're on a roll. Oh, you're talking about an endangered Hawaiian goose that <laughs> that's there. Number two. Tell, tell everyone what your number two is. Well, I, you, you got to tell me. I don't. I don't have it up. I'm. I'm curious. I'm curious to see what I wrote. I think I know. It's the Franklin D. Roosevelt National Historic oh, Site. Yeah. Oh my god! It's so cool. It is so cool. Harper's Ferry comes in at number three, Big Ben number four, and then the San Antonio Missions National Historic Park, um, which for those who are not congressmen from San Antonio would know as the Alamo. Well, there's there's four missions and the Alamo is part of, of those missions. And a little fun fact, um, people think the Alamo is the oldest mission in Texas. It's actually not. There's three missions in El Paso that are about four. Two, three hundred years older. Hundred years older. That is a lot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a lot of a, a lot of Texas history actually begins in El Paso. So, have you seen the endangered Hawaiian goose known as the Nene? I, I did not see it when I was there. I've been to Haleakala once, and let me tell you this: this was the first trip I went um, on with my girlfriend, now wife. We we were in Hawaii, and we went to Haleakala. And it was raining, right? It was raining and it was pouring down. And we're like, this is crazy. And so we're we're hiking, we're wet, right? We didn't prepare to have, we didn't have extra clothes to get wet. It was a little bit miserable. And then all of a sudden, you see these two little kids, buck naked, running down the running down this, running down the street. We're like, what? It, it was like straight out of, it was like straight out. I thought it was like, like, um, um, what's the what's the uh, the uh, the flies? What's the what's the book about the flies? Lord of the flies. Lord of the flies, right? <laughs> and 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 it was like these two little German kids, right? Like Germans are notorious for being like when they go on holiday, their kids being buck naked. And so you know, again, that was not you know. I know your German listeners. Um, I do enjoy Germany. I'm on the German Marshall Fund. We're gonna make a list: Langston, Oklahoma, and Germans. So far, so that's why Haleakala, right, is great. 
did it with my now wife, and this was something that we do. The FDR Museum in, in upstate, like I didn't realize like how beautiful parts of New York State are. And you see that at, at FDR. And it was it was a great experience because I was I was posted there and my parents had come. You know, my parents, my parents are older. Like my dad is right now 90 years old, just turned 90 um, day before Halloween. My mom is 79. And so to like that was like our like a little trip together that we had taken and we had never done that. So so that's why why that uh, that place is so special. And Harper's Ferry is a cool place to get from D.C. So when I was in D.C. for a weekend and wanted to get out, I would go to Harper's Ferry. So it was always a great getaway. Big Ben's awesome. Santa Atlanta Canyon is really one of the most beautiful things. People need to see that. And then obviously the Alamo. If you come to San Antonio, there's a, there's a, a, a mission. It's called the Mission Reach. So you can bike all four missions. It's about a 14-mile trail. Um, super fantastic. And at the time, Henry Cuellar and I was helpful in getting the, some of the additional resources to reclaim this area. Um, so like I said, it's, it's cool. And, and look, I love the park because when I was a kid, never went on, we went on one family vacation, Corpus Christi, Texas. I'll let you describe to your listeners, Corpus Christi, Texas. Um, we've stayed at a Holiday Inn. I thought I was in the Taj Mahal, right? I, I'm like amazing. We go to the beach for the first time. I run out to the beach and immediately get stung by a jellyfish. And it was miserable. Never went back to the beach until like I was like 19, 20, I think. So we didn't do that as a kid. And when I was in Congress, I represented um, eight parks. Now there's a ninth that, that I helped. Um, I began the process of getting it turned into a, a state designation. And so it's a really, it was a really cool thing that I began to enjoy as, as an adult. And then you start realizing, and these really are jewels. Of, of our country. And these are things that we should protect. And these are things that are important to who we are as a people. And, and folks can, can coalesce around how awesome and magnificent these things are. And to think that this was started uh, really by Teddy Roosevelt, to think that the number of places uh, around the country where we have identified and protected these amazing locations, it's, it's pretty cool. As the co-chair of the National Parks Caucus, I mean, this isn't a committee. What are you doing? Do you just sit around together and talk about your coolest talk national parks? parks? Yeah, you know, we, we, we share our top five list. No, um, so, so, so at the time, at the time that I was there, there was this, like, a shocker. Uh, the federal government was not taking care of the parks the way they should. And there was a backlog of, 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 of repairs, right? So it's like, oh... You know, the, 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 the place where you show up to check in, there's a panel missing, but, you know, it, does, it never rains, so it's not going to hurt anything. Or, you know, uh, there's four toilets and one's not working, but you still got three, so it's fine, right? And, and so these kinds of things started piling up. And it was, it was like, I, I forget the number. I want it close to it was almost to a billion, right? With a B, which is nuts. And so this was going to prevent the, uh, some of these parks were going to have to close because some of the facilities. So Ron Kind, um, a congressman from from um, uh, Wisconsin, Democrat from Wisconsin, was my co-chair, and we helped um, we helped lead this this um, this thing. And look, it got it got passed under under uh, under President Trump. We were able to negotiate that. Tr- President Trump signed the law. I always laugh that President Obama is the one that has the national parks. Um, uh, 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 Netflix show, but guess what? He didn't help us with that backlog when he was when he was in in office. They didn't mention that in the Netflix show, but um, but yeah. So that's why that's what, that's what, that's one of the big projects we worked on. All right, I've got a funny national park story. I love national parks. I love taking road trips across the country and stopping at every park along the way, state or national for that matter. What's your top five? Oh my gosh, I mean, Petrified National Forest might be number one because it's weird. And cool, and there's just nothing else like it. Um, I would need to think really carefully about my top five. That would be a. I'm going to update my blog with your with your uh, with your <laughs> suggestions. So I don't think she'll mind me sharing this story, but my sister-in-law, right after we got married, was going to come stay with us and bring her boyfriend, and we were super pumped. And I, you know, was like, "Oh, what does he do?" And she's like, "He's a park ranger." And I'm like, "Oh my god, this is the coolest! I can't wait to meet this guy and talk to him about." 
being a park ranger. I was just leaving the Trump administration. And frankly, I was in for a change of career. And I was like, maybe I'll go be a park ranger, you know? And like, he'll tell me all about it. So he, um, he shows up at my house and uh, my husband is, is taking his sister's bags up and like showing her the room and everything. And I sit down with him, pour him a glass of wine and <laughs> said, tell me everything about being a park ranger. And he's like, what do you mean? I was like, are you state? Are you federal? Are you out on the trails? Are you behind a desk? You know, sort of like if someone tells you they're, they're in the CIA, you actually don't know a whole lot. There's a, a lot of different things you could be doing. Um, and he lived out in Oregon. So that's also beautiful country, you know, could be anything. And he just like looked at me weirdly. And he's like, I'm not sure I understand. <laughs> I was like, she told me that you're a park ranger. And he's like, I grow weed. <laughs> he was a weed farmer that so why did she call it a park ranger is that the cut i have no idea because i don't think she wanted to tell me (laughs) if he was a park ranger where would he work i don't know what are oregon's oregon has some cool they have like crater lake right i think that's one of their cool ones okay so but this is a good jumping off point on some policy discussions because within the republican party and now within something that maybe we'll call the remnant, uh, like conservatives, national parks can actually be somewhat controversial. What is the role of the federal government? How much land should the federal government control? And especially out West where, um, you know, you have a lot of land disputes and the federal government owns so much land. How are conservatives supposed to think about national parks? Look, um, I, I think it's simple. If, if, if the, we, we know what the jewels of our country are and let's protect them. And, and so in Texas, it's it's a little bit easier to have these conversations because so few land is actually owned by the federal government, right? I think I think that's the difference. And so when you get further out west, the, that that increases. And so if it's a place that should be protected and preserved for the next two hundred years, then yes, it should be it should be a national park. Um, you know, it's and and so where some of these debates come up, in in my opinion. It's there's some specific nuance. Should there be drilling on the park? Should in, on federal land? Should there not? What should be able to happen? There's also debates within uh, federal entities on what can be done on a federal park. Look, Border Patrol and the National Park Service and Big Ben would always have some have some some frictions uh, because of jurisdictional issues. So some of these things can come up, but. But there is there there should be an ability for everybody to sit down and say, hey, is this a resource that should be protected? If the answer is yes, then yes, let's make it a national park. It sh- if it should not be, then let's let's release that land or do what we usually do when when, when the, the federal government is getting rid of, of property. And so I, I think these all usually come down to like one, two, or three issues, and we try to make that as the as the norm, right, rather than the exception. And I think ultimately, when you look at conservation, this is a very conservative principle. It's a way that we can protect our societies for the future. And so it's just, it's, I, I think oftentimes this gets out of hand because people love to create contrast and want to you know, fight somebody with a political bludgeon over an issue that should be able to be resolved. And, and oftentimes that resolution, there is some resolution at the state or the local level about what should be done with these, with these, with these um, properties. All right, we're going to do choose your own adventure, Will. You get three topics, and you're going to pick which one we're doing next. One, immigration border control. Two, Russia, China. Three, artificial intelligence. We only get to pick one of those three, or, or, or we're going to get to all three of those? I don't know. Let, I don't let, know. Let's start, Who knows? Let's, let, let's start with border. Let's start with border, right? Because I, I think this is probably one of the biggest uh, 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 national security and federal challenges the United States is facing right now. What's happening at the border is an, indeed a crisis. Um, last year, 2.5 million people came into our country legally. That, that's what was known. That does not include what's a term called gotaways. This is where Border Patrol knows somebody got away, but we don't know how many. So 2.5 million. And what, I, what I've had to explain to many of my, 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 my more liberal friends is that's not a positive. That doesn't mean you're, you're, you're stopping more people, right? Because in essence, what the, most of those 2.5 million people are doing, they're coming in between our ports of entry and in essence, surrendering to Border Patrol. 
And what has happened, and why have we gotten to this point? Because under the Trump administration, they started treating every person coming to the country illegally as an asylum seeker. And President Biden has continued that, and that's where things have just escalated out of control. Asylum is very specific. You have to be part of a protected class. You know, uh, um, you know, gender, race, sexual orientation, you name it. There's, there's, they're, they're, they're outlined with these protected classes. And this is, this is, this is um, international convention. Your government has to be persecuting you because you're part of that protected class or a separate group is persecuting you because you're part of that protected class and your government's not protecting you, right? Like these are the two reasons that you have to, these are the two things you have to meet around the world to apply for asylum. And for example, and I think this becomes, it's heartbreaking, but as you just said, the law is actually very clear on asylum seekers. So for instance, your husband is abusing you violently, abusively. You are in fear of your life if you stay in your home. So you seek asylum in the United States. You do not qualify for asylum. Um, You are starving. There is no food. Your country is in a famine. You seek asylum in the United States. That does not qualify for asylum. And MS-13, large part, like you're being targeted by a gang in your country of sort of uh, violence of a pretty generic sort, bad violence, murder, that does not qualify you for asylum. Those are all terrible things that are happening to people around the world, specifically in um, you know, Central America, uh, and they don't qualify for asylum. No, but, but guess what? Those are all root causes that need to be addressed when it comes to illegal immigration, right? And so, 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 so that's why um, we have to start, and, and there was all this debate about Title 42. Title 42 was, is, 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 has been on the books for quite some time, and it's basically um, preventing, it's, it's deporting people from, um, for medical reasons, right? And that was something that uh, I believe uh, President Trump first started using it towards the end of his term, and, and President Biden continued it. But there's already uh, powers. It's called Title VIII. And Title VIII has, has been on the book since 1992 um, that says you have to meet those criteria. And Border Patrol actually has a lot of responsibility in deporting people. Now, unfortunately, the Biden administration hates using the word deported. Right? They, look, uh, you will appreciate this. They change the way they keep track of certain categories when President Biden came in. So to be able to compare and contrast with with Department of Homeland Security's own information, it's super complicated. Right. And, and, And part of this government loves doing this, by the way, when it comes to spending or any metric. They just change the way they count the metric. That way you can't compare between administrations. It's very clever and incredibly frustrating for people who actually want to solve problems. 100%, right? And, and, and to be honest, I think it's disingenuous in saying you're trying to address a problem when you're obfuscating a lot of the information and making it harder to better understand this, right? And, and so, so, so that, that alone, that, that notion of treating everybody as a asylum seeker, which means everybody gets an immigration court hearing, um, that's where you get the whole concept of catch and release. That's when you have... You know, at certain times, hundreds of people sleeping on the streets of El Paso or thousands of people under Del Rio. Like, that's what's driving that. So, so start, one, stop treating everybody as an asylum seeker. It's that simple. And ultimately, that means we got to deport more folks. Two, dismantle the human smuggling networks that are bringing people along. Guess what, Sarah? It's freaking hard to get from Guatemala City to Del Rio, Texas. It's freaking hard, okay? So everybody, those 2.5 million people had a phone number of a smuggler. They had a, a license plate number of a bus. They had a pickup location in their host country, all that. We should be using this intelligence to dismantle these human smuggling networks because guess what? These people, the smugglers are preying on innocent people, right? Like they're, they're taking their money. They're putting people on a perilous journey it's unacceptable. We should be dismantling those networks. We're basically funding the drug cartels through that, by the way. I mean, our 
immigration policy, whether you think it's lax or whatever, it's incompetent and it encourages smuggling operations. And so we are funding the drug cartels that are fueling the violence in a lot of these countries and that are creating the need for people to leave that country and flee, whether it's political violence, generalized violence, all the reasons that people come to the United States, we're actually paying for that somehow. Well, look, okay, let's do some math. When I left Congress in, 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 in 2000, in 2001, I left in 2001. That was my last day, January 4th, 2001. Um, the Wait, not 2001. Huh? You said 2001. Uh, two, uh, 2021, sorry. Yeah, yeah, 2021. <laughs> the one, the, the most recent one. <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm still on Y2K. Yeah, clearly. It was about seven grand a human smuggler was getting. And the person who paid seven grand got two, ch- got two choices, the two chances to get smuggled back and forth. What's 2.5 million times seven? Seven, 7,000. It's a lot of dope, right? Going to these places. And so, but, but you bring up another point. And this is where oftentimes, and you're seeing it on the far left and the far right, this, this criticism of any kind of foreign policy or foreign aid. It is a fraction of the cost to help address root causes. And, 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 and um, historically, illegal immigration has come from El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, the, the Northern Triangle. Right now, it's coming from everywhere. But historically, those three countries, we should be addressing root causes there because as you point out, it's a, it's a fraction of the cost to solve the problem there before it gets to our, our, our shores right, and gets here and we have to spend federal dollars. So that's oftentimes the disconnect when we talk about when we talk about policy. Oh, by the way, how about we improve these economies so we can trade with them more? By the way, how about we start increasing our, our, our ties to our own hemisphere and prevent the Russians and the Chinese from, from participating? When you look at the countries that have not signed on to sanctions against Russia's invasion of Ukraine, it is a lot of places in Africa and most of South America and Central America, right? That's just crazy. When you look at Russia today, the, 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 the Russian um, you know, disinformation arm, their footprint in Mexico in Spanish is completely larger than it ever was in the United States in English, right? And then you look at what the Chinese government is doing in building relationships and their Belt and Road Initiative and working in some of these countries. And they're building our backyard. The Mexican government is using Chinese equipment on the border. What the heck, right? And so all of these things are, are, are interconnected. And oftentimes, you know, look, I wish Elon Musk would, would, would increase the number of characters in a tweet. Let's double that sucker so we can have a more a nuance and thoughtful things because we can only talk about one thing. We, the, the world is interconnected. It's complicated. It's dangerous. And we need a posse. We need to be working with our friends. And so that's why these things are all interconnected. And we have to walk, uh, uh, talk, and chew gum at the same time, right? So we can address border security. We can address Ukraine. We can deal with near power uh, or, 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 or peer competition with the Chinese government. We can prepare to deal with technology because all this shit is moving so fast, right? And, 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 and we can't just be sitting here twiddling our thumbs, focusing on just one thing at a time. The world's too complicated. Um, I, I think you misunderstand the purpose of Twitter for most people. But aside from that, uh, <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a bug. It's a feature, I'm afraid. Um, so when I think about our immigration system, I think about... Uh, and when, as a conservative, right, when we talk about regulation, regulation helps big businesses. It's actually part of the way that they prevent competition is government capture. They get, whether it's city councils or state legislatures or the federal government, to pass really complicated regulations in order to enter the industry. Um, and that always is going to benefit the big and the powerful, right? They get to write the regulations, lobby about the regulations, um, and they can pay the lawyers and the staff to then comply with the regulations. And when it comes to immigration, there's something analogous to that, which is for those on the left who think that a compassionate immigration system is one that allows 2.5 million people to enter the country illegally, not with any plan, 
not with any system or social safety net from us, just like literally have their feet in the soil and then we cross our fingers and hope for the best, um, that does benefit someone. It benefits the drug cartels and the human smuggling operations because they're the ones who are then understanding the system. I mean, you mentioned the most important part, which is how many chances you get for your money. Um, you know, I've heard $10,000 for three chances. Uh, yeah, 7,500 or so for two chances. I mean, that's not, these are sophisticated actors and you don't give them enough credit when you think it's just, um, you know, someone fleeing their home for economic depression and then walking all the way up here. It's not that simple. They're paying a lot of money to bad guys and that's fueling government corruption and all sorts of other problems that I mentioned. A compassionate immigration system is one where there's a process and there's rules because that actually benefits the people who need to come to this country the most because it would be clear how you do it and who gets in and there'd be a line and we would let people in. I personally think we should let more people in. But aside from that, you, you have rules in a process and that's what makes it fair and compassionate. And we don't have five-year-old girls being left in the desert. And we hope that Border Patrol finds them in time before they die. Um, because they were left there by human smugglers because five-year-old girls aren't that easy to travel with. And there's not a whole lot of cost. You've already been paid the money uh, to smuggle them up. And what depresses me, Will, though, is that you've talked about this before. And what you've also said is true, which is this isn't getting fixed tomorrow or any time in the near future because Republicans and Democrats enjoy the political talking point. Look, 100%, right? Because, oh, by the way, we also need to streamline legal immigration, as you said. Like, look, even where the economy is now, um, almost like there are so many industries that still need workers, right? It's 2023. We should be able to say, okay, if, if California needs uh, technical workers, you know, for this month, we should be able to, to address for that. If Texas needs, um, you know, construction, we should be able to address. If, if, if Florida needs agriculture, we should be able to, we should be able to do that real time and understand what's coming in. And if, guess what, if you're going to be a, 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 a hardworking, productive member of our society, let's get you here as quickly as possible. But as you said, let's do it legally. But guess what? This is where uh, Democrats don't want to, they, they don't want to agree to something like that because ultimately the unions are, are, are against that kind of thing. And so everybody has kind of their side. Which, by the way, is fascinating because if you follow that through, the unions don't want that because they think that cheaper labor will drive down wages. But yet, what do you think illegal immigration is in this country? Sure, but they're going, that, that's, a lot of that's going into places that probably aren't unionized, right? Right. And, and so, so, so that's, the, that's the reality and that's the, look, I, I always go back It's to, still hurting non-union wage earners in sure, this country. It's hurting, it's hurting everybody, right? And so, so, look, there are so many areas where if you polled the population that we can get set over 70% on a lot of these different parts within immigration. The solutions are not complicated. Okay, we like these things have been written up and on the books for quite some time, and it just requires people to have political will to do that, and 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 it's just it's just it's it's frustrating. Look, we when I was in, we did that USA Act. It was Pete Aguilar and I, Democrat from California, and um, look, we ultimately jammed Republican leadership, arcane uh, policy thing to to get to try to get a vote. We came two votes away from getting it. Had it gone to the floor, we would have had like 238 votes. All you need is 218. That same piece of legislation, when Nancy Pelosi came into power, she could have put it on the floor and it still would have got 238 votes and she didn't, right? And so that's the thing that's so frustrating about this. Oh, and by the way, at a time when the Chinese government is still stealing our technology, stealing our intellectual property, Let's steal their engineers. Let's make sure these kids that are coming from China and going to University of Texas or Stanford, or whatever, let's make them stay here and build businesses. Why has, has Canada's tech industry increased? Because nobody can get a freaking visa to stay in the United States. So who's that helping? Look, I'd rather help Canada than China because Canada's our homeboy, right? But like that's, 
That's insane. And so why are we letting the United States of America has benefited from the brain gain of every other country for decades? Let's continue that. And so, so to me, um, that's what's so frustrating about this because we're actually hurting our competitiveness long term. When, one of the numbers that I'm super scared by is the number of foreign kids going to U.S. universities. Um, it started to d- drop, and you'll have to fact check me on this. I want to say it was 2017, maybe it was 2015. I forget what year. It didn't drop after 9/11 when everybody was freaking out, you know, about uh, about you know people coming from uh, countries that were that were Muslim countries. I mean, it didn't drop then. It's only dropped recently. And why should we be afraid of that? That says one, there's other universities that um, are that are going to give kids those skills that they need. There's kids that are unwilling to come to this place. Oh, and by the way, these people that have powered many of our industries, like when you look at the number of entrepreneurs in the United States that were first or second year, uh, a second time immigrants, it's crazy. Immigration has been the lifeblood of of America. And so we're just just cutting our, we're cutting our nose off in spite of our face. And it's super frustrating because we know what the solutions are. Oh, and by the way, 80% of Americans want to see these things solved. All right. I want to now go to like a really big picture philosophical question. I am concerned about AI, but not for the reasons everyone else is. Interesting. (laughs) I am concerned that AI is great, that it will integrate so seamlessly into everything we do. Um, You know, we're moving so far past replacing jobs at McDonald's. Like that's already done. We're now moving into um, writing and schooling that, you know, the, the fear over whether AI is going to help kids plagiarize. No, pass that conversation too. Don't even think of it as plagiarism. We're actually going to need to teach kids how to work with these AI chatbots in order to write better and get their answers better and faster. And that's going to be the new competitive game, not who turns out to be a better writer. And for folks like you or me, um, that's going to put us at a competitive disadvantage at some point. Hopefully we'll be dead, but who knows? Um, fingers crossed for death. And, <laughs> and my concern about it is that that will all work pretty seamlessly. It will make everything better. And that we in, um, in the United States, in the first world, whatever you want to call it, in places that aren't worried about scarce resources in the same way, that we will end up for a lot of people, tons of people, losing a sense of purpose because you won't be needed anymore. And that's already happening. We're seeing the numbers in men who are committing suicide, drug overdoses. They have a sense of hopelessness. Teenage girls, um, I mean, some of the stats that are coming out about them, we're blaming phones and stuff. I get it. And the bullying, all that's true. I don't know that it's monocausal though. But there's a sense of like, why am I here? I'm not day-to-day providing food for my family or fending off lions. And my concern is that as AI gets bigger, that sense of purpose is going to be even harder for people to find. What say you, Will Heard, about finding a sense of purpose in 2023 and beyond? Sure. Look, great question. Great framing. Um, I I think those are are, uh, real and honest concerns, right? And, and for, for listeners' background, um, I'm on the board of directors for OpenAI. OpenAI is the company that has produced ChatGPT. Um, so, you know, everybody, you know, that's probably been the, the tech story of, of the year so far. Um, and, and, and look, so, so to your point, AI is a tool. And we have to make sure this tool develops so that it actually uplifts humanity. Um, that's what we're trying to do. And, 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 and guess what? It's hard to your point about. So, so I think the, the, the thing we have to realize about artificial intelligence, this is not going to become that, that, that state that you described. It's not going to happen after we die. That's going to happen sooner rather than later, because the adoption of artificial intelligence is going to happen at a speed that we've never seen before. It took 20 years for the internet to propagate to where it was ubiquitous and people are using it. AI is already happening. The fact that 
in one week, we had a million users. I think we eclipsed a 10 million pretty quickly after that. That's a speed that no software or no technology adoption has, has ever happened. And so how do we ensure that people still have that sense of worth? What, what I hope, and this is, this is where I think this is going, it's going to force us to ask, start asking and thinking and pondering more difficult questions. So you and I, oh, you're, probably, you're not old enough. I'm older than you. It's true. He's, I, think, I think you're three years older than me. <laughs> look, look, I have a literal typewriter that I used when I was in the seventh grade. I have, my parents had the Funkin' Wagnalls encyclopedia from Kroger. Nice. Like one, I'm glad we had Funkin' Wagnalls because there were funks in, 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 the, in the stage, right? But like, remember researching a paper with CD the encyclopedia. Yes, yeah, it's freaking hard, okay? But get, and, and that's, why, that's why in school, you only had one paper like every month. It was not something that happened. It was not something that happened every week. But then this thing called a computer, this thing called the internet, this ability to research, we were able to grab information even faster. So that improved our ability to write and to think and to ponder. That is what AI is going to help us do, right? And so now we shouldn't be teaching our kids to write a, a article about what, you know, what was the war of 1812. We should be asking them we, we, uh, thought processes and how to think through what was the impact of 1812 on, on our society and on our future trajectory, right? And, and, and so... You know, look, one of the things I've learned as being a professional intelligence officer for the first part, first decade of my adult life, the questions you ask are more important than anything else. And, and ask, in order to ask good questions, you have to have a familiarity with a topic and, 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 an, and an area to understand the information you're getting. So that's a long-winded way to say, I hope this for, forces us to start asking more difficult questions. They're going to be very different questions today. And, and I think what's going to be hard with society is that the transition into the age of AI is going to be so fast, and that is going to feel abrupt. In a lot of technologies, it was okay if one generation got past, they were still able to operate and feel that sense of worth. That's what's going to happen now. And, and you made a statement that um, AI is already replacing um, workers at, at, at McDonald's. Well, did they replace them? There weren't workers there anyways, right? Like, 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 like th this is part of it. Everybody thought, damn, going to the grocery store, we're going to get rid of everybody bagging groceries. Well, no, it's actually increased the efficiency. And it wasn't like people were let off for being able to do that because um, it, it was able to help meet demand. So, so I think that, that's the vision in which we have to go. Oh, and by the way, this is a freaking race, okay? This is a race between us and the Chinese. The Chinese yesterday or earlier this week just released what's called MOSS, M-O-S-S. -S. It's their version of ChatGPT aside. Um, it was having a hard time reading Mandarin. I'm like, like, come on, guys. They had guys. this with the keyboard, remember? They had a, a big struggle. They were behind us on being able to have a keyboard. So- what do we want? If this tool is going to be ubiquitous and we worry about TikTok, right? Um, we need to make sure this is developed with democratic values and not authoritarian values. And so people that are complaining that some of the AI chatbots are too woke or other you know, schools uh, preventing chatbots from being used, used, that's the wrong way to look at this. How do we develop this technology? And ask these philosophical questions. It's going to fundamentally change teaching in a good way, I think, because it'll, it's teachers are going to have to teach the question part, not the answer part. And the answer part is where we're having all these fights. 100%. 100%. And, and look, when kids come up to me and they're like, you know, Mr. Hur, what, what classes should I'm in college? Um, if you were back in college, what classes would you take? I always say philosophy. Because these same big freaking questions we're asking now have been asked for 2,000 years, right? And, and so, so like, th like thinking through these, oh, and by the way, I don't want 
the egghead engineers uh, determining these, right? And I use egghead in a not in a derisive term. We're adding them to the list: Langston, Oklahoma, now engineers. And and so 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 like that. That's what that's what like we need people to have these conversations. We need our elected officials to understand the technology enough to have these kinds of conversations. And 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 look, we 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 started this conversation talking about regulation. This is one case where where regulation could actually improve some of these technologies. Um, guess what? Like, let, let's take the metaverse, right? It's a little bit easier. If you put on an Oculus Quest and go into meta, I should be able to get to Decentraland. Now, if I pay a tax and do all that, that's fine. But, but, but there should be an interoperability that ultimately happens. Just like in Windows, you didn't have to, you didn't have, to have a special permission to build an application on top of Windows. As, as an operating system, but then cell phones came in and had all these walled gardens and that prevented us. And, and, and ultimately my data is mine. What I do in the digital world is mine. I should be able to determine who uses it, how it's used and where I take it. And so these are some of the things that we need to talk about. Oh, and by the way, and I'll, and I'll end with this here, uh, AI needs to follow the law, period. Right? We already have laws on discrimination. And so if you're a bank tailor and you're using a, an algorithm to determine um, who, gets a, who gets a loan and you misuse the algorithm and, and, and prevent someone from getting a loan for some, uh, for, so for, because of discrimination, it's the bank teller's fault. But if the algorithm itself was biased or discriminatory, then whoever developed the algorithm, it's their fault, right? And, and so this is where we need to be thinking all rules apply. Right. And and these are where some of the conversation needs to go because this stuff's moving fast. Yeah. I'm pumped for defamation law applied to algorithms. That's going to be crazy. Um, OK, this is a related question. Is universal basic income a conservative idea? I, I don't think so. I don't think that would be the case. Is it? Is it? Is it? A, you're, you're smarter on these things. I don't know. The idea being like that at some point we replace social safety nets and instead give people a check for money. We're giving them money already, but now we're giving it to them in the form of Social Security and Medicare and food stamps and this and that and, and rent and all these things. Um, I'm very intrigued by some of the experiments that are happening around the country in universal basic income. Now, of course, the, the problem and that so often happens is, no, it doesn't replace anything. It's just also. Um, I'm against also government, um, the also form of government. But as AI moves forward, as these jobs change so fundamentally and what we need from people changes fundamentally. I'm intrigued by the idea, but anyway. Sure. And, and, and look, uh, so, so again, it's a, it's a valid concern, but this goes back to does UBI um, further erode this sense of self and the sense of worth. Right. And, and, and look, this is something, this is what I talk about. We need to have these debates, right? Like we need people that have opposing philosophical viewpoints to have these conversations and have these debates to figure out where we where we come down on this. And actually, now is the time to have it because it's a lot easier to have the conversation before something is, is used, you know, is, is ubiquitous throughout society and have those conversations now. And we need to make sure that we're having this because Europe is anywhere between 18 and 24 uh, months ahead of us when it comes to policy around technology. They did that on the GDPR, the General Data Regulatory Policy, I think is what it's called. It's like very, very European. It's like very clear what, what this thing is. Um, and, and look, I was involved in, in the debates on that. I was like, hey, this is going to hurt American businesses. I just found out three years later that I go to a lot of websites with cookies, right? And so, so, so Europe is, is th this year, Europe is going to come out with, with regulations when it comes to AI. Why should we care? Because this is going to be policies that all big American multinational companies are involved in this are going to ultimately going to follow. And this becomes um, de facto the rules of the road. And I would rather, I would rather the United States making those conversations and, and, and setting that and engaging in that policy debate, because this is something, whether you've used chat GPT or not, um, this is something that's going to impact anybody. If you've gotten a suggest, you know, look, 
everything that Instagram has ever suggested that I would like to buy, I bought it and I've always enjoyed it, right? Like their algorithm, I'm figuring out my, my, the things that I would enjoy are, are, is spot on, right? Um, and so, so we, this is all impacting us. Wait, can you give us an example? Name something you bought off Instagram, an Instagram suggested ad. Oh, um, a, uh, a the, 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 the microphone <laughs> on which I'm talking with you right now. Was an that Instagram is a good suggestion. suggestion from Instagram. Wow. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great suggestion. But but again, so 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 why does this matter and why do I talk about it so much? It's because the Chinese government has made it very clear they're trying to surpass the United States of America as a global superpower. And the way they're gonna do that is by becoming the global leader on a number of advanced technologies, 5G, quantum computing, and artificial intelligence is one of them. And I want to prevent the United States of America from becoming the United Kingdom of the 21st century. And, and, and so this is where we have to have these debates and we can't just put our heads in the sand and point at something and saying it's bad. So I was reading this book about nuclear weapons. It's called The Making of the Atomic Bomb by Richard Rhodes. And, and in that, there is an interview with, um, uh, with Niels Bohr, right? We all remember Niels Bohr, the Bohr yeah. model of the atom. Like we learned all that shit from him, right? So Bohr, Bohr was, so in the 20s, late 20s, early 30s, the press understood that unlocking the atom was going to generate a unbelievably awesome amount of power, right? And so even then, even early on before, before the Manhattan Project and all that, there was a sense that, that, we, they, that these scientists were working on something that was going to potentially have a disastrous effect. And Niels Bohr goes, and I'm paraphrasing here, he goes, I'm not creating this. We're uncovering the truth. This already exists. And so let's develop it, right? And so, so AI is coming. It is being developed. We're in a competition for this. We got to do this right. And the only way, guess what? In this Cold War, our adversary, is four times our size. Russia was not four times our size, right? That means we have to be four times more effective. And the only way we're going to be an authoritarian government that can move all factors of production in one direction is if the public sector and the private sector work together on solving these problems. And that's where we need to go. And we need to focus on these, these, these complicated topics, whether it's, it's, whether it's, it's immigration, artificial intelligence, or dealing with Vladimir Putin. All right. Last thing. And Will, it's just, it's just you and me and maybe a hundred thousand or more of our friends. Okay. That's it. Just you and me and them. You're going to New Hampshire. You're doing interviews in Iowa. Those states are not known for their winter tourism, except for very specific group of people. Are you really thinking about this? So I was lucky to go to New Hampshire and, and speak to folks to see if, if something like what I, the, what I espouse resonates with people. And, and here's, here's what I've learned. Um, 2020, the lesson of the 2020 election, don't be a jerk, don't be a socialist. Okay? The lesson of 2022 was be common sense, and solve real freaking problems, right? Like that is what the country wants. And I'm sick and tired of Republicans losing in general elections. The actual opportunity for Republicans are independent and general election and, and Democrats who are as frustrated with the Democratic Party as we are, right? But you have to give them someone that's willing to solve these problems. Oh, and by the way, despite what you see on Twitter and cable news, way more unites us and divides us. And, and so I think we have a decade to, to get our act together so that we can win this new Cold War with China. And so, so look, it, it's, been, it's been nice um, having people um, invite me to come talk. And um, you know, I, I've always said, and, and you know this, if I can serve my country, I've been lucky to serve it in a number of different ways. And I've seen our enemies up close and personal. And so if I can serve my country again, I would, I would, definitely, I would definitely evaluate that. So 
put aside the fact that you are newly married. Congrats, by the way, that ring looks very shiny, but you know what you haven't done in this full hour? You haven't played with it once, which is amazing and remarkable. Most newly married men are sitting there twiddling the, the ring around, you know, spinning it on their finger. You don't. So you're like old hat at this whole marriage thing. It's amazing. I'm going to clip this section and, and send it to, can that be the one that you'll share? You know, so my wife hears that. <laughs> For sure. Uh, okay. So set aside your time, your new marriage, and all of those sort of personal reasons. I don't see a lot of downsides to running for president these days, um, assuming that you don't win. Um, actually, if you win, there are some downsides. Um, but assume that you don't win. Maybe there should be more downsides because we don't really need everyone and their mother running for president all the time. Um, but, you know, even then, the downsides aren't huge. The Democrats had 29 people run in 2020. And like, if you include like the Deval Patricks and folks who sort of got in in that second wave. Yeah. And I'm not counting like all 29 you've heard of. I'm not counting randoms. There's always randoms. Um, no, 29 real people ran for president. Uh, it was 17 for the Republicans in 2016. Uh, so I'm curious, as you think about this, I always think of things in terms of downsides. The upsides are always kind of obvious. I don't do pros and cons lists. I do cons lists and see if I can live with those cons. So what are the downsides of running for president? Again, setting aside your family and your time and being in New Hampshire in the winter, which I've done. And I'm just going to go ahead and put that in a downside. So I've always tried to be thoughtful, right? I've always tried to be credible. I've always tried to be someone that is honest and, you know, tells it like it is, right? And, and so, um, uh, you know, would a downside be uh, people don't take you seriously, right? Like, but in, in the end, is that, a, how big of a deal is that potentially? Um, I don't, I, you know, you know, I, everybody can have a, have a difference, difference of opinion. Um, but look, you know, I wish every sophomore and junior in high school could go abroad and live in some place other than like Paris or London, right? And, and, and you appreciate how awesome this place is, right? Like, like I remember my first class in international studies, they said the rule of law. And I'm like, like 18, 19 year old Will is like, rule of law? Come on. This is the first class? Of course, this freaking rule of law, right? Like, come on. This is a dumb class. This was all, this is what I'm spending my money on, right? And then I go live in places that didn't have rule of law. And you're like, I went back to that class. I was like, they were onto something. And so, so like, we need people that are stewards of this experiment. And, and, and I've been fortunate to have some experiences that are great. And I want to make sure. That when I have kids and my nieces and nephews and 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 everybody like they have the same opportunities that I have, right? And and look, we've come a long way. My, I represent a district that would not allow, and in some places wouldn't allow my dad to stay in, in hotels or eat at restaurants, right? Like like that's just crazy. Like we've come so far. So my my point is, um, it's it's. Uh, yeah, look, it's it's anybody running for office is hard, right? Um, you you take a lot of grief, um, you take a lot of heat, but if and, and and if you if you think there's a pathway to success, you don't run just to run. If you think there's a pathway to success, is success always winning, or is success relevance? Is success getting your ideas no, out there, pushing well, the party? I think if you're running for office, you should define success as winning. Okay, just checking. You know. Yeah, you should. Yeah, you should define. That's like you don't know, like. I like. I just because these things are, like campaigns are so are so tough. You got to raise a lot of money. You got to put. You 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 call on your friends and folks. Like you don't do that to half ass, right? Or you do that because you think there's a you think there's a, a, a way to win, right? Like that's. I think that that that's always been my advice to people. That are, that are seeking running for office. All right, last question, most important one. For those visiting San Antonio for the first time, give us the number one place for breakfast tacos that you would send them to and number one place for barbecue and you have a one hour radius from the San Antonio airport. So are these people Texans or are they not from Texas? Nope. 
They're not from Texas in this case. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, so that my answers are different. Um, so if you're not from Texas and you're in San Antonio, you should go to Taco Taco. Right. Um, and it's a, it's a fantastic place. Won a lot of awards, a lot of San Antonians go there. Taco Taco is great, but the reality is what's great about San Antonio, the little mom and pop shops that you're like, um, is that a, is that a, like, what is that? Is that, it could be a junkyard or <laughs> it could be a doctor's office. I don't know. Um, those are, those are, those are fantastic places. So Taco Taco, uh, um, uh, barbecue is 2M. So the South side of San Antonio. It's fantastic. Um, you got like, they have their, their hours are a little strange. So make sure you check out their hours before you go. Um, if you're downtown, like if you're staying downtown, like on the river walk and you don't have wheels, then there's a place called Pinkerton's, uh, which, which is walkable and it's, it's, it's an excellent, it's an excellent place. And then the best Tex-Mex, La Fonda on Main. Not La Fonda, La Fonda on Main, right? That's the whole name. Because there's a bunch of different, there's a bunch of different places that have the word La Fonda in it. La Fonda on Main, that's where I always take people uh, to. Or, or if you're out in my hood, um, uh, El Chaparral. We call it El Chap. I've been going there since I was in, since I was in high school. Oh, and like, a lot of people, if you're coming to San Antonio and you like country music, you're going to go to Flores Country Store. And so Flores Country Store is right next, is very close to El Chaparral. So go eat dinner at El Shop, then go to Flores Country Store to, to boot scoop. Uh, that's the most important thing to come out of this podcast. That was great. It was a nice little tour of San Antonio. Thank you, Will Hurd, former congressman, Texas 23, great friend of the pod when I'm guest hosting. Uh, I think Jonah likes you too, but you know, that's Jonah's problem. Thanks, Will. Thanks for having me on and give me your five, you know, make sure you email me your five favorite. Oh yeah. There's going to be like a bracket at my house. So I can, yeah. so I can update my, so I can update the blog. <laughs> Will do. <laughs> and for all of you, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is my podcast.